Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,197. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Farmington Hills, Michigan, with a very special guest by the name of Jace Delker. Jace, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I am. Let's get let's get going. Before I give you a proper introduction, and we talk about your career and your life and your passion for cars, what's one little thing that maybe most people don't know about you, Jace? Sure. So a lot of my close friends know this, but I, I guess I could say people in my professional network don't really know this, but I actually have a large collection of vintage and antique radios. It's been a kind of a fun little side hobby for me since I was a teenager, and I, for some reason, continue to do it. <laughs> you know, I have a cousin who had, um, I mean, I think he had 450 vintage radios. I mean, he... Oh, I'm not quite there. He went off the deep end, and most of his stuff was from the 30s and 40s, so a lot of Bakelite stuff, and he also had some big cabinets that were beautiful, wooden cabinets. Is there an era of radio that you like? So I, I kind of do collect all eras. I, I do have some of the 30s stuff, but not very much, but I really love, like, the colorful 1950s things. Um, so I have a handful of, like, the tabletop, you know, like old Westinghouse and RCA... Uh, old Zenith, but I really like transistor radios, like the little handheld ones in the 50s. Okay. Um, I just love how small they are and how intricately detailed they are. And I think that's just such a fascinating thing for really kind of a throwaway consumer product, really, kind of the way we treat our cell phones these days. But back then they were just so, the, the designs were just outrageous for something so small. You know what I mean? I just, I just think it's a, it's an unusual consumer product. Yeah, very fun. Fun hobby for sure. Careful, though. Mm-hmm. It can get out of control. <laughs> so be careful. Uh, believe but, me, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Almost, you know, my, my cousin got, he got so crazy. He finally started letting some of them go because he literally had the walls of where he was living just lined with shelves and radios. It was like, oh, man, you got an addiction going here, buddy. Yeah. But they they were quite beautiful to look at. And he gave me one of them, which kind of had an art deco look to it, kind of an automotive feel to it uh, mm-hmm. as a gift one year. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. I particularly love Crosley uh, for a couple of reasons. One, my, my dad. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's actually from the Cincinnati area. So, you know, Crosley was in, you know, downtown Cincinnati, basically, on their old factory. It's off, it's off of uh, Highway 75. When you're going through Cincinnati, you actually drive right past it if you if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of companies nowadays that have kind of brought back the idea of a desktop radio, kind of retro looking. Mm-hmm. But and in fact, I bought my wife years ago a couple Grundigs. Mm hmm. Yeah. That were very cool. They had leather cases. This was actually probably 20 years ago, plus now that I think about it. Uh, they're long gone. I think I've sold them on eBay because you stopped listening because of everything we have now that we can listen mm-hmm. you know, on. But uh, it's nice when these these old things, we kind of come back and relive. And you're a young guy. You're 27 years old. So yep. um, yeah. So when I was a little kid, I remember on the 60s, transistor radios coming out, you know, with the telescoping antenna you'd pull out and hold mm-hmm. up to your ear and listen. And yeah. they were like so cool, you know. <laughs> now it's yeah, yeah. wow, our phones, everything is at our fingertips. Yeah, so one thing I like to do, especially with the tabletop models, is I'll actually modify them and put a little Bluetooth chip inside of them. Ah, and okay. I'll basically intercept the 
audio coming from like the radio side of the circuitry uh-huh. and patch in my own Bluetooth audio and it'll it'll run through the original amplifier, like the tube amp and speaker. So it'll it'll sound the way it's supposed to, but it'll be wireless off of your phone. So very cool. That's usually I like to give radios for gifts to friends and family, and so I'll I'll always toss a Bluetooth chip in there, and they just think it's just the craziest thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun. Very nice. Yeah. Well, let me let me give you an introduction here. Jason Delker is a 27 year old, as I said, automotive enthusiast. He's an inventor and a bit of an entrepreneur. He's a graduate from the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, and currently is employed as an engineer for General Motors at the GM Proving Grounds in Milford, Michigan. He has a passion for old cars as well as using his engineering skills to make improvements to them and old radios too apparently. We'll be back in just a moment but first a word from our sponsors so sit tight and we'll be right back. Covercraft offers you 10 different options. That's right 10 for your special vehicles protections. You can choose from Weather Shield HP, HD, Sunbrella, Ultratect, Reflect, FormFit, Custom View Shield and their newest five-layer all-climate three-layer moderate climate, and five-layer indoor options. All are custom-tailored by Covercraft's talented craftspeople just for you. It's the form and fit with the quality and attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. Surface protection is the best way to preserve the investment you've made in your vehicles. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft too. I have a Covercraft cover for every one of my vehicles, and I have a deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Just use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. I was talking with a buddy of mine the other day, and he asked me about American Collectors Insurance. He said, While I listen to you on Cars Yeah, you're always talking about agreed value collector car insurance. Well, I insure all my cars on my regular auto insurance policy, and I've done it for years. Why use a different company for my collector cars? I get a multi-car discount. Isn't that good enough? I suggested he call his carrier and ask how much he would get if his collector car was totaled or stolen. He called back and said, boy, that was a scary conversation. Their value of my car wasn't even close to what it's really worth. Thank you for the education, Mark. So don't just hope for a fair claim settlement. Be certain and know exactly what you receive with an agreed value policy. American Collectors Insurance has been protecting enthusiasts since 1976. Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green's at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance, classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors, automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. Fall is here, and you know what that means. Time to put a good coat of protection on your vehicle. I'm teamed up with AutoGeek, and they've been the leading source of auto detailing products, accessories, and expert knowledge for more than 20 years. What started back in 1997 as a small mail-order catalog company grew into a multi-website-based e-commerce store, and that's what they are today. With a large online presence on its own website featuring close to 100 different brands, AutoGeek has grown to be the largest car care retailer in the country. AutoGeek's wholesale program serves accounts in over 30 countries, and its retail sector ships worldwide. If you want to protect your vehicle this fall, and you should, go to AutoGeek.net for the best product selection on the internet today and 
technical support. AutoGeek.net is where I go for my detailing needs. That's AutoGeek.net. So, Jace, we are back. So I want to talk a little bit. You're a young person, and I'm excited to have young people on the show to talk about what they're doing, how they've created a career around their passion for automotive things, because a lot of people love cars, but they don't realize how many great careers there are in cars. And I'm going to ask you a little bit, too, a little bit about the EV world and what's coming and all the things that are coming in the future and get a young person's impression of this really automotive renaissance but let's go back to your passion where that all came from uh going to school and getting a job at gm so walk us through a little time frame sure yeah so it it all started my honestly my earliest of early memories that i can think back as far as i can was actually going to a small town car show at a grocery store with my dad in his 62 corvette fuelie that's a car that i've grown up around Uh, my dad had uh, has owned it since 81 or 2 um, so I, I grew up around that car. Uh, you know, it's it's Roman red on red interior, which a lot of them you see are actually red on black, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's my earliest memory is going to a car show with that car, and being immersed in the automotive culture with my dad and my grandfather. My grandfather, he's really into you know more of your bigger 1950s cars, like you know 57 Chevys and that type of stuff. He had a small collection of Packards, which I grew up around. There's pictures of me in diapers sitting in like a like a 36 Dietrich Packers or something. So it's just been a part of my life, my entire life. And when I was, you know, in high school thinking about going to college, like all I knew that I wanted to do was get in the auto industry. But really, I think up until that point, my viewpoint of the auto industry was pretty narrow because I had I had had no exposure to. I guess you could say the engineering world, you know, growing up in the Atlanta area, mm-hmm. you know, kids that grow up here in the Detroit metro area. I mean, the, the opportunities for, you know, learning about the auto industry while in high school or even I mean, just growing up really in general are just unending around here. I mean, I'm really impressed with the culture of just the math and science culture, the STEM culture in this area is, is unlike things that I've seen in other geographic areas. But um, at least where I grew up, I just knew that I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to work for the auto industry, but I didn't really know, I didn't really know what automotive engineers did, really. Sure. And so I just knew that if I went to school and got a degree in engineering, that I would, you know, hopefully find my find my way into the auto industry at some point. And so uh, as actually my freshman year at Georgia Tech, um, I actually went to the career fair, which a, a lot of colleges, they host career fairs where, you know, your all of your big companies come and they, it's like a big expo and students can go and, and talk to the companies. So the the career fairs are typically marketed more towards your your you know your juniors or your seniors like people that are about to graduate actually looking for jobs but they actually encourage freshmen to go just to sort of get exposure to the idea of all these big companies being there. Well, and what the opportunities might be, I would think the different type. Like you said, lots of times people go, "I want to design cars." Well, what does that mean? I mean, there's so many pieces right. of cars. Is it the engine, the chassis, the body, the seats, yeah. the lights, whatever it might be? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I decided to go just just simply because I was encouraged to go as a freshman. I wasn't even looking for a job opportunity. So anyway, I went and I saw that Ford, GM, and Chrysler were there, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to talk to these three. And I just simply asked GM and or excuse me, Ford and Chrysler. I said, uh, do you guys hire freshmen? And they're like, oh no, we don't, but we appreciate your interest and we hope you come back in the next few years and maybe we can give you an opportunity. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's really all I ex- uh, all I expected. I wasn't expecting anything. Anything just handed to me, right? Yeah, you got a job, kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I was only three weeks into my freshman year. Yeah, so I, I didn't even know where my classes were. I mean, I don't even know what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> Jumping the so, gun a little bit there. But I liked your enthusiasm, Jace. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I just figured I'd ask, you know, after having a quick conversation introducing myself. So at the career fair, um, General Motors was there, and they, uh, they had one of the engineers there that worked on the C7 Corvette. And I was just really excited just to go talk to somebody who worked on that car. You know, given that I grew up around a Corvette, you know, I just thought that's, that's really neat to be able to talk to somebody who's a part of the latest and greatest. And so um, I just struck up a conversation with a guy. I didn't even ask him if they were hiring, you know, somebody like me. Uh, so we just started talking about cars. I, I told him a brief history of, you know, my involvement with, you know, the auto industry. You know, my dad and my grandfather working on old cars. And after the conversation was over, he's like, hey, how about an interview tomorrow? And I was like, me? I'm a freshman. I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. I, can't, I don't even know where my classes are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, of course, I, I, I graciously accepted the opportunity. And uh, the following day, uh, funnily enough... If I remember correctly, the interview was at like nine o'clock and I had just got out of an 8 a.m. class and the interview was on the other side of campus. Mm -hmm. And also, too, I don't know if it's like this now, but at the time they, you know, you wanted to dress as professionally as possible. So I was in I was in a suit on my bike sprinting across campus. <laughs> yeah. And some, I think something happened to my bike along the way, like my 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 tire went flat or my chain fell off or something. And I think I got to the interview late, like just sweating, just like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm here. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But anyway, so the interview went really well. And, and, you know, they asked me a bunch of questions about, uh, you know, my background in the auto industry. And it's, what's funny is one of the questions they seem like they asked kids a lot was, uh, are you familiar with all of General Motors brands? And so of course I went through and I rattled off all the brands and I was like, well, I can eat, I can name the defunct brands too. I can go through Saturn and Pontiac and, and Saab. And he's like, okay, no, okay, you're good. Just stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, this guy's a complete nerd, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Fine. Yeah. So that was, that was really good. The interview went really well. And I honestly was not, you know, expecting anything out of it other than just the fact that I was it was good prep work. You know, I, I thought that there wouldn't be any reason why they would want to hire me given that, you know, perhaps other than my interest in cars, but, you know, I had no academic experience up until that point. And so, um, you know, finish up the interview and I just, I mean, I wouldn't say that I forgot about it, but I wasn't, I didn't have any high hopes, right. Just because of the situation. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from my, well, soon to be manager, uh, Larry, and he said, how would you like to come up the following summer and work at the G Improving Ground? Oh, wow. And I was just I was just over the moon. I was like, wow, what a great opportunity. So I I, uh, I graciously accepted. And the following summer, I came up to Michigan for the first time. Uh, I had never been in Michigan before, you know, living on my own and uh, actually an apartment actually provided by GM, which was really nice and uh, and worked at the Proving Ground. And my first day, I was just blown away by how to describe this, like the multitude of jobs that I didn't even know existed. Like I met this guy and he's like, oh yeah, I'm the door handle validation engineer. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah. You well, know, but the, the, the jobs are so granular, you know, there's, they're, they're so specific and they have to be when you're making, you know, millions of cars per year. It just really opened my eyes to the possibilities. And um, I knew that I, I really wanted to work there in my career after college. So talk to me about what you're doing there today at General Motors at the Proving Grounds. Sure. So uh, currently I'm in the drive mode controls team. And uh, so what drive modes are, if you're unfamiliar, is um, a lot of newer vehicles, especially higher trim vehicles like your, you know, your Buicks and Cadillacs are going to have drive modes. And so those are customizable settings where you can change driving characteristics about your car. Um, so you'll have settings like, you know, different braking, different suspension, different steering, uh, pedal maps that are configurable. So most of the times they're, they're grouped into preset settings like tour mode or sport mode or track mode. 
some of your EV programs have uh, modes called max power mode, which up the maximum current draw for the for the EV system, giving you a boost of power, which is pretty cool. And there's even some really interesting ones that you, know, you may have seen with the new Hummer, like Crab Mode and uh, and Watts to Freedom, which is their version of of the max power mode. And so we, I work in a group that basically owns the entire uh, requirements and development of drive modes. This is kind of interesting because we talked about this earlier, how there's so many different parts to a car and all these different people having to work together to make everything work. And, and they get pretty granular, I would suspect. I mean, you're talking about this one part of a vehicle when you think of all the different parts of the vehicles. So how do you work with other divisions so that you guys all end up with the kind of vehicle you want and maybe not the Pontiac Aztec. Oh, right, right. To cite one I pick on all the time. Yeah, so that's actually one crucial part of my role. So on one side of my role is it's sort of more validation. It's basically ensuring that uh, the requirements that are set forth, that the, that the actual development vehicles that we're working on, their prototypes, uh, that they're actually meeting the requirements. And so we actually also make the requirements. So we have these huge documents that contain basically all the requirements. So pretty much every manufacturer does this, but they'll say that, you know, system A is supposed to behave in this manner, in this manner, in this manner. They're very like logic statements. There's kind of like a flow chart, right? And so we use that to, um, those are requirements that are sent to sometimes suppliers that develop our hardware and software will say, you have to make a system that does this, this, and this, and this or else it's not good, right? Um, we also have sometimes systems will do the, be developed in-house by our own engineers, and they'll reference those same documents. And then once they actually start uh, you know, developing and releasing their hardware and software, we'll use those same documents to go back and check, okay, this system that we spec'd out to do this, is it doing that? And you know, most of the time it does, but if there's problems, then we can circle back and say, hey, you know, this line item here, this needs improvement. And then they'll, they'll make their change, and then we'll go back and test it. And if it's good, it's good to go. Um, that's basically long and short of, of, of kind of how that works. So for young people listening today that want to go into the automotive world, how would you advise them to set off on a career path where they can end up doing what you're doing or something different or anything in the automotive career? I think the most important thing for a young person, uh, you know, perhaps if you're in high school or college, is, is be teachable. I sort of found out by accident that, you know, when you go talk to these recruiters, you know, that are that are hiring or, or at the career fair or whatnot, if you're in college, they're looking for somebody who's teachable. They're not looking for somebody who, who thinks they know everything already, right? Because the reality of it is, is that, you know, before I got in the auto industry, I had no idea that my job even existed. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go to a recruiter and try to tell them, how you know everything already. And I think, honestly, this is applicable to totally industry, any industry, but to say, I might not know everything, but I'm really ready and willing to learn, you know, whatever this skill, this required skill set is. It's, it's really, it's really about that. And I think also too, it's important to have a baseline interest and passion for, for, for the automotive industry. I think that's really just, you know, icing on the cake for a recruiter because they know that you'll, you'll put in the extra added passion other than it just being a day job, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll want to bring excellence to, to the table. Yeah. So I'd love to get your opinion as a young person, Jace, about this very strong push towards electric vehicles versus ice, because it seems like to me that it's being forced down our throats. It's being forced down the throats of manufacturers. 
specifically by the government right now that you have to do this and you have to do it fast. And we see it even with, with specific states. I'll pick on California. Um, you know, we're not going to allow the sale of any more elect, uh, our ICE vehicles in 2035. Well, that isn't very far away. And you kind of scratch your head and go, how can you do that? How can the manufacturers get there? And are the consumers willing to accept this when there's still a lot of challenges with it? Range anxiety, charging stations, time to charge, all these kind of things. So I'd love your impression as a young person working in the automotive industry about these topics. Sure, sure. So I think one thing that's important to separate is perhaps the governmental regulatory side of, of the push. That's where most of the push is coming from. And, and a lot of that, in some ways, I disagree with. I, I definitely think in a lot of ways, the government should try to stay out as much as they can when it comes to trying to force industry to do specific things. I think that does create problems. But I think EVs, as a specific, uh, specifically as a technology, I mean, in a lot of ways, EVs are still in their infancy. And I think whether or not wherever that push comes from, I think a push, perhaps if you disagree with the source of it now, a push is going to be required to get EVs to the point where they're viable. They may not be completely viable for everyone right now, but perhaps they might be by 2035 or 2040 or 2045, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be a point in the automotive industry. I can't tell you exactly when it's going to be, but then EVs are going to be as viable, if not more viable than ICE programs. And we've got to be able to get there. And we won't get there if perhaps it is it is being resisted so much, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, personally, one thing that I love about EVs is that they have so much less maintenance. I feel like I spend so much time on my own personal cars, changing spark plugs and changing the oil and doing all, you know, changing valve cover gaskets, all these annoying things to have to do, especially as your car ages, that an EV, you just get in it and you press the button and it goes. It's so much simpler. So that to me is a big appeal to me. A lot of the appeals to me for EVs is really like more of the living with and using one every day. EVs are getting to the point now where you're seeing some programs have 400 and 500 miles of range. And, you know, really how often, you know, when we talk about range anxiety, how often do you drive more than 400 or 500 miles in a day? Right. Even on a cross-country trip, uh, you probably are going to limit yeah. yourself to three, 400 miles. Otherwise, that's a long day. <laughs> it is. It is. And I think I think we're, we're getting to the point where where a lot of the sort of classic EV perhaps issues or, or, or hesitancies are, are starting to become minimized. And I think range anxiety is one of those that is rapidly going away. And I think charging stations are becoming more prolific um, with EV fast charging. And you can get an EV up to, you know, a majority of its range and, you know, really not that, not that long, perhaps the amount of time that it takes to perhaps sit down and have a meal at, say, a Cracker Barrel or something if you're on a road trip, right? Um, so EVs, I think if you're going on a road trip, they definitely, today, they definitely take a lot more planning. You know, you got to look at your route. You got to be strategic about where am I going to stop to charge and what am I going to do during that time? But if you can, if you can strategize, we're going to sit down and have a meal at this time. By the time you come out to your vehicle, it might be 80% charged back up and you're ready to go for other, say, 300 miles. Probably is not unlike what uh, people had to deal with back in the teens and tens and twenties uh, when they were going on road trips yeah. back then with where are the gas stations? Where can we stop? Yeah. Where can we get yeah. fixed up? So yeah, this is a dynamic time. It is. And I saw somebody had a really interesting perspective on, uh, I, I saw it somewhere on social media, but like, you know, a lot of times we talk about how there was an inflection point in the auto industry in the early, you know, turn of the century where you had steam, electric and gasoline cars all sharing uh, about a third of the market share. Of course, gasoline took off because at the time it, it was the uh, it was the most viable technology at the time, which is why gasoline took off. And then, of course, you know, EVs were basically forgotten about for close to 100 years. And then 100 years. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. 
And in that time, we've perfected IC engine cars. I mean, they are about as efficient and reliable as possible. I mean, it's not uncommon to get into, a, say, a Toyota Camry and drive the thing 300,000 miles with minimal maintenance. I mean, that is an incredible feat. Oh, yeah. And that just wasn't possible before, you know, or before the modern era, if you will. But I saw somebody had an interesting perspective. They're like, imagine if, if the industries were flipped and EVs took off 100 years ago and we have these perfect EVs today. And then just say anecdotal, not anecdotal, but like hypothetically, the government's saying, okay, well, now we're going to have these cars that run on this super flammable liquid, and it's going to be in a tank behind your seat, and it's going to be powered by this super complex machine under the hood that you're going to have to maintain and change the oil. Like, you can kind of start to see that there will always be some type of cultural pushback when something's unfamiliar, when something's different. Of course. And so I think that's just something that we're going to have to weather for the next few years, for good or bad. I think in the long run, it's going to be beneficial for everyone. Well, we will see. We just got to get there first. And, you know, I see in cars are not going to go away anytime soon. There's plenty of cars in the used car market. Used cars are actually, you know, increasing in value for a number of reasons. And, you know, it's really a shame that we've gotten gotten rid of a lot of our IC engine cars, you know, save with the cash for clunkers thing a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that that eliminated a lot of cars that would be useful to people today. Uh, that's, that's another example of, of government stepping in when they probably shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could have a long, long talk about government messing oh. things oh, up yeah. for sure, but we won't go down that path today. But I appreciate your input on this. This is quite interesting and things are certainly changing and will continue to change and, and we will see where we go with this, but it's fascinating times, that's for sure. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We come back, we'll talk a little bit more here. So sit tight and we'll be right back. You've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine here on Cars Yeah for a couple of years now. Well, they're growing. And in 2023, they're going to grow from four issues a year to six. And there's an opportunity here for you to take advantage of this growth. If you go to linkagemag.com and click on the renew button, if you already subscribe, you can get a great deal. Use the code renew6 for one year and you'll get six issues for the price of four or type in renew 12 for two years where you also have a great savings plus they'll even throw in a free linkage hat how cool is that the publisher of linkage is donald osborne he's been a guest multiple times here on cars yeah he's become a good friend of mine and i'll tell you linkage magazine is one of those newer magazines that you're going to want to get it's all about experiences opinions and values it's a wonderful publication something i look forward to getting and now that i'm going to be getting six a year even more special so go to linkagemag.com again use the code renew6 or renew12 to get that special deal do it before december 31st 2022 so that in 2023 you'll get six issues of linkage magazine instead of four if you're listening to this program there's a pretty good chance you believe what i believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, and their goal is is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them 
with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. So I always like to ask about what I call our driving inspirations, people that are very influential in your life or mentors. Have you had somebody like that in your world? Yeah. So actually, when uh, when I was in high school, I think I think one of the people that really kicked off my entrepreneurial side of, of, of my career was uh, actually my former boss. My, my first job, I worked at an antique store. Uh-huh. And uh, my former boss, Miss Deborah, she really encouraged me to monetize my hobbies and monetize my interests. And so, long story short, when I worked at the antique store, I, you know, basically worked behind the counter, helped out with the operations of the, of the uh, of the store. And at the time, I had, I mean, I'd been collecting antique radios for quite a while. And she encouraged me to sort of turn that into a business. She basically offered me a, a corner of the of the store, and she's like, "You can, whatever you want to put here, you can sell." And so oh, I just wow. started buying and selling old radios, and that just became wildly successful, believe it or not. So in high school, I had this little side business of restoring old radios and putting them out for sale. And ever since then, I've I've always tried to think, you know, how can I monetize? How can I make money doing this weird thing or whatever? Or, or how can I make a product for somebody? And so that kind of, um, you know, brought me into the startup world. I've, I've been involved in a handful of startups before my time at GM. That's just really a uh, a big part of my life is the entrepreneurial side. And, and one day I would really love to own my own business. That's really kind of my long-term goal. Yeah. Maybe be a supplier to a major manufacturer on some component yeah, part or yeah. something like that. Some, something like that. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. I mean, for now, I mean, I, I really love the opportunity to work at GM as an engineer, but I think, you know, as, as I, as I get older, you know, maybe decades down the line or whatever, my, my long-term goal is would be to own my own company in some way, shape or form. Very cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about challenges, and this could be related to work. It could be related to anything, but I like to ask this question, and it's really more about what this great challenge taught you as you went through it or after you came out of it that was positive. When we talk about challenges, you know, sometimes we think about, you know, a big triumph or a big success, but honestly, one of my one of my biggest failures is something that I've, I've pulled a lot of a lot of value out of. So, you know, speaking of startups a minute ago, when I was in college, I was involved in in a startup and we were actually trying to improve the aerodynamics of tractor trailer rigs. Ah. And so we started this company, we operated it for about two years. And the end, it really kind of fizzled out. And it was for a number of reasons. And it was, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but Mm -hmm. I learned so much about what makes a successful startup from having a failed one. (laughs) You know what I mean? To the point where I, I sit and daydream all day about about different startup ideas. And, you know, just from my experience in in the startup that ultimately was not successful, I can reference that and go, think about ways that that business idea might not be successful or ways that I can improve it. And it's it's just a really amazing reference point for for someone like me to have, to, to know what quickly what works and what doesn't work based on my experience. Great lesson. I've had many, many people who've been involved in multiple startups, lots of failures because startups are, Mm -hmm. I I saw something the other day, something about 85%, 90% of startups never get to the, get to the end goal. Uh, it's just part of the deal. And typically it's money. They run out of money. Uh, but sometimes they're mismanaged and sometimes they, you know, you just don't know what you're doing, but, uh, kudos to you while in college to do that type of thing. We're going to talk about cars a little bit here because we are on cars. Yeah. And I'd love to hear about a special vehicle in your life that has meant something to you and take us on a little journey in that ride. Sure. Yeah. So I can give you a little background on my one car that I can never see myself sell. And so, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about my, my dad's Corvette. You know, my dad's had this Corvette since he was, I think, about 18 or 19. 
And that for him, his that him, he's like, this is the car that I'll never sell. I'll never get rid of it. I'll I'll pass it on to you one day. You know, growing up, I was like, man, I I, I want to have a car that I feel that strongly about. And so when I was a freshman in college, actually around the same time that I actually started at GM, I happened across an opportunity to buy a DeLorean, an 81 DeLorean that had been sitting for about 20 years before I before I acquired it. Of course, it was a little bit of a restoration project. You know, I had mouse and rat damage in the interior. I mean, it was it was uh, it wasn't too far off, but it still needed a lot of TLC. And so, you know, bought it as a freshman, not really knowing anything about DeLoreans because a lot of my experience with older cars was kind of more in your, you know, 60s, 70s, 50s era, you know, where everything's pretty standardized. You know, you learn how to work on a small block Chevy. You can kind of work on every engine of that era, right? <laughs> sure. But the DeLorean was this horribly complex, you know, electromechanical, you know, CIS fuel injection that just takes a lot to wrap your head around on why on earth they would design a fuel injection system like this. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, as a fresh, I picked up this car sort of with the intention of, of really just kind of maybe fixing it up and owning it for a few years and maybe getting rid of it and doing something else. But, you know, after I got it running, I just really fell in love with the car and really what it means to a lot of people. I mean, I would take it over to gas stations and you'd have a family come out and just, you know, just over the moon, they get to see a DeLorean, you know, the kids want to sit in and everything. It's, it's really cool because it's, it's one of those cars that kind of bridges the gap between car people and just culture in general. Like the sure. DeLorean is such a big part of 80s culture. And, you know, a lot of people don't even realize it's a real car. You know, they're like, oh, is that the car? Is that the car from the movie? The movie like, car, yeah. No, no the DeLorean car. was a real car. There's, there's this whole story about John DeLorean. And, you know, they tried to build these cars in Northern Ireland, you know, and you just see people, people like, I go, I had no idea. You know, it, it really encouraged them to go and look up the history of the car. And so that's really one of the reasons why I decided that I really wanted to keep that car Long term, I felt like it's a very me car. You know, yeah, it's kind of quirky and weird and different, and uh, and just has such an unusual history and actually a very well documented history too. Sometimes more well documented than even the stuff you know at, at GM. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating history. And I have had many guests on the show with DeLoreans and also an author who's written two books. He was with John DeLorean when he started the company, and he was actually the guy who turned off the lights in the factory when it all ended. Was that Barry Wills? Yeah, Barry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I know Barry. Yeah, so a uh, fascinating life. So I'm going to crawl into your head and be your car psychologist. If you were manifest, reincarnated as a vehicle, what would you be and why, Jace? I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier. De- definitely be a DeLorean. I think, <laughs> I think okay. the reason is that the DeLorean is, even for the time, even today, is a very unusual and quirky and different car. And it kind of marches to the beat of its own drum. And that's kind of me, you know? <laughs> there you I kinda, go. I kind of have, have my own crazy ideas and, and I go after them whether or not they, you know, they might not pan out in the end, kind of like the DeLorean. But, you know, yeah. sometimes they are successful. I don't know. Like I said, I, I think it's it's just a really me car. It kind of epitomizes kind of like the like the Tucker, you know, kind of a, a, a guy going out on his own and trying to do something different, you know perhaps against the will of the, of the rest of the industry right? and uh, and coming up with something, you know, arguably one of the most iconic cars ever. I was going to say, we have a guy right now named Elon Musk doing that, but he's successful at it. Uh, that's pretty amazing yeah, yeah. What, what he's been able to pull off. I've often thought mm-hmm. about, you know, what has Elon done that John DeLorean and Tucker, Preston Tucker couldn't do or didn't do. I know a lot of it has to do with the times and there's all these different factors, but is there any relationship to those people and their mindsets and uh, where they've ended up? So, and even when you look at the the one Tesla model with the go-wing doors, kind of like the DeLorean, um, you know, it's like a little bit of a touch back to that. And the Cybertruck too. Well, yeah, let's hope that eventually comes true. I mean, it's a, it's one of those very unique vehicles that really kind of 
separates people. You either love it or you hate it, but you got to love yeah. what he's doing. I mean, it's just like, wow. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. We'll see if that uh, comes true. And uh, yeah, pretty amazing person. How about a great book? Is there a book you'd like to share with us that you've enjoyed? Oddly enough, <laughs> this might sound kind of bad to some people, but I have a hard time honestly, sitting still and reading for any any amount of time. I really enjoy perhaps movies and podcasts a lot more. And and one of my favorite movies is actually the the the, the biopic, perhaps, or dramatization of uh, Preston Tucker's story, oh, played okay. by Jeff Bridges. Um, that is one of my all-time favorite movies because, you know, again, it's another story of the underdog guy, you know, going out and trying to do his own thing. Um, I love the scene in the movie where the, the character that plays Alex Trimelis, the lead designer for... Uh, for Tucker, where he comes up and he says, I'd like to apply to work in your design department. He's like, okay, you're hired. And he's like, well, where is the design department? He's like, you're the design department. <laughs> you know, I, I just love the, the startup, anything's possible attitude mm-hmm. of, of, of really a story like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's in a lot of ways how, you know, we try to usher forward, you know, new technology is, is through daring people like that. And right. so I've always been inspired by people like Preston Tucker, Elon Musk, John DeLorean, Nikola Tesla, for me, I, I love inventors. Yeah. Well, even and, Carol you know, Shelby. Up, I, always, I always wanted to be an inventor. Yeah, yeah. Carol Shelby, too. Yeah. Yeah. You think about what he did and how he did it and how he just pushed his way through and, you know, uh, just got things done and did things. And especially working with the major big manufacturers, Ford, of course, um, and how he convinced yeah. them to be able to do what he did is pretty amazing. He was quite the salesman. Right. So I'm going to allow yeah. you to go on what I call the ultimate drive. I'm going to buy you any car in the world today. You can take it anywhere and you can take anybody with you, even somebody from the past who's no longer with us, which opens the doors to all sorts of interesting conversations in this vehicle. So what does the ultimate drive look like for you, Jace? So I thought about this a while and one person, another sort of adventure that's always inspired me is Zero Duntov. And mm. I would love to just perhaps go on a ride with him in a, in a 60, 63 split window vet, perhaps in northern Michigan or something, and just, you know, have him tell me the story about his career and how he made the strategic moves that he did. And um, one thing I thought was just always so, again, daring about someone like him is that the way I didn't actually know this until recently, but the way he actually got involved with General Motors initially was when he saw the early, you know, 53 Corvette at the Autorama, he took a look over it and he, he found it kind of underwhelming. He actually wrote a letter to General Motors telling them how he felt that it was kind of underwhelming and it could be a lot better. And that's actually why they hired him as, <laughs> you know, to work on the Corvette program. Can you imagine, like, can, can you imagine going to the auto show and seeing the C8 Corvette and going, meh, that could be better. And sending a letter to like Mark Royce or Mary Barra and being like, it could be better. And this is how we're going to do it. And, and they actually hire that. you. <laughs> yeah. Like to me, that that is so daring to be so confident in your ability to perhaps engineer a vehicle or really do anything mm-hmm. that, you know, you'll go to a big company and say, you need to hire me because, you know, your, your product could be better. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think very few people have have that amount of guts to put themselves out there like that. Right. Yeah. And, and not be afraid to fail. Exactly. And you know, it'd be cool about that ride with uh, Duntoff is for you to go on that ride in a 63 split window and then pull into a parking lot and get out and say, now I'm going to take you on a ride in the new C8 and yeah, see what yeah. he would say. <laughs> see if he'd say the same mm-hmm. thing. Eh, kind of underwhelming. I could prove this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause well, cause the C8 is really sort of a tribute to him because for years he tried to push the envelope at GM and try to make uh, a mid-engine Corvette. Cause he knew that was a logic, the next logical step. 
Yeah. And, you know, of course, it's taken till, you know, 2020 for that to happen. But a long time. It's just really amazing to see Corvette finally come full circle. Like it's a part of Corvette's early history. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Those new cars are awesome. So you've taken us on a great ride today. I'd love for you to leave us with some words of inspiration, a success quote or a mantra, maybe. Sure, sure. I'm name dropping a lot of inventors here, but yeah. uh, another one of my favorite inventors is actually not exactly car related, but Dr. Edwin Land. He was the former president of Polaroid. One of his favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes from him that I've kept with me for a lot of years is he said, an essential aspect of creativity is not being afraid to fail. Mm, yeah. And I think what's important about that is like, I've had big and small failures and big and small successes in my career, but really I feel like I've learned the most I mentioned before from the big failures. Mm-hmm. And I think when you really combine that with a lot of willpower to want to be successful, I mean, that's almost an unstoppable combination. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. That's a, a first for that quote, but it certainly fits with a lot of the themes here at Cars. Yeah. How can people learn more about you and follow you, Jace? Sure. Uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Um, I'm the only Jace Delker really on the internet, so I shouldn't be that hard to find. <laughs> yeah, it. you got a unique name for sure. Yeah. Okay, I'll put links to that on Jace's show notes page so you can follow him and uh, be encouraged if you're a young listeners out, a listener out there and you want to reach out to him, I'm sure he'll follow up uh, if you want to get into the automotive industry just like Jace has. Jace, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and sharing your story. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.